Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this time. And now, Lord, as we get into the word, I pray that you would use that word to speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit would admonish and teach, exhort, lift up where we need to be lifted up, tear down where we need to be torn down. Lord, that you would apply this word to each heart and each life as you in your sovereign will see fit. Lord, we come to this without any preconceived ideas or motives, but simply to hear from the Almighty God. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Continuing our work in Philippians here. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong service. I almost said Proverbs. Tonight we'll be in Proverbs 13, just a quick commercial, finishing off that chapter. This morning we're looking at a passage that has confused a lot of people. It leaves some to teach a work-based salvation, and uh, it gets misused a lot. Those who would teach a works-based salvation would say, well, look at this verse. See, we, we work out our own salvation, right? It's what we do. We affect our salvation. Our good works, they contribute. I was reading, I, I, I don't know why I do this. It raises my blood pressure. But I, as I was studying this, I was reading multiple Roman Catholic sources on this passage. Who all said, see, see, we, we work and our good works bring about our salvation. That's not what the passage is talking about. I got mad at the Catholics and I turned to the Mormons. And the Mormons, see what they said? See, you work out your salvation by doing good works, and that brings about your salvation. And my blood pressure got raised again, and I had to turn it all off and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not what this is talking about. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul did not say you're saved by grace through faith, and then turn around to Philippi and go, but you've got to work in order to be saved. He didn't do that. Okay? Paul is consistent throughout all of his letters and writings in the scriptures. We have many great references in the Bible to God's free grace and salvation. Turn to Titus 3, verse 3. Let's rehearse some of what Paul has said about salvation. Titus 3, verse 3. And by the way, when someone comes to you with this passage and says, you know, well, this teaches work salvation. And you go to another passage and say, well, over here, it doesn't. And they say, well, this passage cancels out that. Listen, the Bible never cancels out the Bible. You must interpret the Bible with the Bible. Okay? So if we have an established truth, then what is this over here saying in light of what we know to be established? Let me give you an example, right? So the oneness would, person would come along and say, uh, well, over here, it sounds like there's just one person of God, right? Uh, Isaiah, he shall be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. Well, there it is. 
There it is. Jesus is the Father, and the Father is Jesus right there. See? What do you do in that situation? Well, then you show them a Trinitarian passage. They say, well, yes, but yours cancels out mine, and mine cancels out yours, and so I guess the Bible's not really true. Or you take what it says about Christ being the everlasting Father in light of what's revealed in Scripture about God. One God in three persons. And then you begin to investigate, well, what did he mean over here in light of what we know to be true? We know the Bible calls Jesus God. We know the Bible calls the Spirit God. We know the Bible calls the Father God. And we know the Bible says there's one God. So now we need to understand that within what is already revealed. Don't cherry pick the Bible. Don't pick it apart. Don't proof text. Don't, try, don't go to the Bible and say, let me find a good verse for my argument. That's not how we use the Bible. Not at all. That's how we get into false teaching. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is a good description of us, isn't it? Like our life before Christ. This was our life before Christ. Paul's saying, this is the way we were. And he doesn't follow this up with, so now if you just work out your good works, you'll be saved. Right? Let's go on. Uh, look at verse uh, 4 here. But after that, after, after what? The kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Now how did this kindness come to us, church? Verse 5. Right? It's not by our own goodness. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, what does grace mean? It means undeserved favor. So if we were made heirs, I'm sorry, if we were justified by his grace, then we were justified undeservedly, which means we could not work it out ourselves. Because if we could, we would deserve it, right? If we could do it, we deserve it. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. It's so clear. It is, you can take other references to salvation and twist them, but that one is very clear. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. So if you're saved by your baptism, right? What does that mean? You're saved by a righteousness that you have done. Something you have done contributed to your salvation. If we're saved even by our free will choice, there's a problem. You know what the problem is? It's something we've done. Nobody's going to stand around in heaven one day when it's all said and done. We're not going to stand there and we're not going to go, Brother Tatsu, I am so glad that I was smart enough to make the choice to choose Jesus. And Tetsu goes, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm so glad I was that smart too. My neighbor, he wasn't as, as good a person as I was. He made a bad choice. Even our coming to Christ, even our repentance, the Bible says, is a gift of God. Amen. Right? There's a verse that says that. Let's peradventure God give, grant them repentance to, to, to the knowledge of the truth. God, so even our repentance, our faith, Everything comes from God, so nothing is by works of righteousness that we have done. We have done nothing 
We will stand in heaven and go, Brother Tatsuo, I can't believe Jesus chose me to be saved. I can't believe he gave me faith. I can't believe he, I didn't deserve any of that. He's going to look at Reuben and go, Reuben, I can't believe that God did that to me. And Reuben's going to say, I can't believe God did that to me. And so on and so forth. And then we join the song. It says, worthy is the lamb that was slain because he redeemed us by his blood. Not by works. So we're not going to stand. No one's in the glory in the presence of God ever. Go back to our text. So I can assure you that the context we see here does not allow for this to be a work salvation. In fact, I would what's, try to sound smart. What postulate? There you go. Postulate to you. This is not about unbelievers at all. This is not about unbelievers at all. Actually, before you go there, go, go to Philippians 1.1. Who is Paul writing to in the book of Philippians? Right? Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Who's he writing to? Saints. He's writing to Christians, not to unbelievers. So the context here cannot be how an unbeliever is born again. That's not, his, that's not who he's talking. He's talking to believers and giving them instructions. Now go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12. We'll start off in our, our text here. Wherefore, my beloved. So Paul calls them his beloved. Are unbelievers Paul's beloved? No. No. So we can firmly say this is to Christians. Someone argue this is a warning not to lose your salvation. Well, it's to Christians, but you've got to work out your salvation or you could fall out of God's favor and be kicked out of the family of God. This, too, is not the meaning of the text. We have many great references to God's keeping power. Hold your place here and turn to John chapter 10. I'm going to take you just to two very important ones. John chapter 10, verse 27. You probably know it by heart. I do. What a wonderful promise we have here in John 10, 27. Jesus said, My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I had a preacher one time, I had a preacher one time who told me, well, no man can pluck you out, but you can jump. That is not in the text, my friend. There is no, nobody has a safer grip on anything than Christ has on his beloved sheep. If no one can snatch us out, we can't jump ourselves. His sheep hear his voice. He knows them. Are you his sheep? Have you heard his voice? He knows you and he gave you eternal life. He gave it to you. There's no takesy backsies with God. Oh, you sinned. I'm taking it back. That would make sense if, our, if we were saved by works. Right? So you've done enough. You, you've earned this. And I'm going to give it to you. Oh, but now you've broken the rules. So I'm going to take it back. We do that with our kids. That's, that's an that's a okay, normal thing. Well, you were good. You earned this treat. But now that you're being bad, you've lost the treat. That's, that's okay. If that, if that was how salvation came, then surely it's okay. For Christ to take it back. 
But he never based salvation on our good works. It was undeserved. It was given to us, right? It was based upon him. He's unchanging and he never sins, so therefore he never takes it back. He never goes back on his word, on the commitment he's made. When you put words in the mouth of Jesus like, my sheep will never perish unless they sin, you make Jesus a liar. Since we're going to be judged every day for every idle word we speak, don't put words in the mouth of Christ he didn't say. Let me give you one more. John 6.37. Turn there. John 6.37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Did you come to Jesus? He'll never cast you out. Him that cometh to me I will never cast away. That's what he's saying. Never cast away. There's no unless in there. I'll never cast him away unless he does this. Then... No, no. Those who come to Christ are given to the Father, and all those who are given to the Father, he'll never cast away. They're his gift from his Father. They're his jewel, his crown. He's not going to give them away or let them go. Go back to our text in Philippians 2. If this is written to believers... And it's not a warning to lose their salvation, then what is it? And that's what I want to dig into this morning. There are two aspects to salvation that sometimes get mixed up in our theology. Charles Haddon Spurgeon termed these two, these two parts, he termed it as two parts of a work done in us. Let me give you his words. Concerning this work done, okay, I misquoted myself. I, I should have. There's two parts to salvation, a work done in us and a work done for us. That's what Spurgeon said. So this is what Spurgeon says concerning the work done for us. He says, the work for us is perfect. None can add thereunto. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has offered a complete atonement for all the offenses of his people. He took his people into union with himself, and by that union they became entitled to all the merit of his righteousness. They became partakers of his everlasting life and inheritors of his glory. Saints are therefore saved completely so far as substitutionary work is concerned. So was the, such was the meaning of those majestic death words of our Lord. It is finished. He had finished transgression, made an end of sin, and brought in everlasting righteousness, and thus perfected forever them that are set apart. That's what Spurgeon said. The other is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So there's a work done for us. That we didn't add anything to, did we? We did nothing. Christ did that completely. Then there's the work done in us. Okay, don't confuse those two. There's a work done for us, and that's done. Complete. The work done in us is not complete, right? It's still going on. Uh, there's still an inner sin nature that lives within us that we have to war against and battle with on a regular basis. We have to submit ourselves to the new man and do righteousness, right? 
That's the work in us. It's the process of sanctification, and it's part of salvation, a very important part. Salvation can be viewed three ways. I want you to get this now. This is very important. We have been, we have been saved. Okay? That's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Titus 3.5 covered that. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Did you catch the past tense there? According to his mercy, he saved, past tense, us. We see it again in Romans 5.9. Turn over there. Romans 5.9. I want you to see this. In Romans 5.9, he, he says it a little bit different. Look at the middle part of Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Being now justified by his blood. Right? Present tense. Go on. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Future tense. Now, why switch from present salvation to future salvation? And this brings us to the second way to view our salvation, and that is that we are being saved. That is the, the working out of our sanctification. So we are saved, past tense. Christ imputed to us his righteousness. We are born again. We are justified before God. Our sins are clear. And then the Bible talks about it in the present tense. We are being saved. How are we being saved? That's the process of sanctification. That's a lifelong process. It's bringing us to the end of what Christ purchased over here. He didn't just purchase us forgiveness of sins, right? He didn't. He, it wasn't just about wiping the, the, the debt off our books and saying, okay, now you can go to heaven. That's what, that's what we get with the, uh, the easy believism crowd. Just, just make the profession of faith, live however you want. God's only goal is for you to go to heaven one day. No, God's goal is to conform us to the image of Christ. That's the goal of salvation. Right? Going to heaven is just the end of that process. So we are being saved through our sanctification. Turn to 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Thessalonians 2.13. The Bible says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. Our salvation is through two things there, belief in the truth. Our believing brought about our justification, right? We are saved past tense by believing. But he's also chosen to save us through sanctification. We're being saved. It's, it's the process of our life of being conformed to the image of Christ. So our salvation, our sanctification is very much a component of our, so stop thinking of salvation one-dimensional. That's the problem we get into. It's not one-dimensional, right? It's a process that God started. You say, well, he started the process. It means you can stop it and lose. No, no, no. You don't lose he, did, he didn't start the process as in he started it, and if we don't cooperate, we're going to lose it. He justified us fully and then began a work to conform us more and more to Christ, a work he finishes over here in heaven when we're finally glorified. 
So we have been saved, are being saved, and will finally be saved when the, the process is complete. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Uh, turn to Hebrews 12, 14. Let me show you how important sanctification is to salvation. It's very, very important. I don't want us to miss the importance of it. See, the easy believers in the crowd says, oh, you don't need the sanctification part. Just the belief. Just believe, live however you want. It doesn't matter if there's any change in here because you're saved. Once saved, always saved. Okay? That's not what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Okay? Uh, Amy and I were in a conference one time, a conference I would never go to again. And a preacher was preaching on this, and he mentioned uh, this passage, and he mentioned the verse. And of course, he's the easy believism crowd. So you don't have to change. You don't have to have any noticeable fruit in your life. Just pray a prayer, you're saved. Boom, done. And he gets to this verse. I thought to myself, how? I think I whispered to my wife, how is he going to handle this verse in light of what he believes? Because I knew what he believed. And he says, well, here's how I take this verse to mean. Whenever, whenever someone tells you, here's how I take this verse to mean, what they're about to say is probably wrong. Okay? I don't care how you take this verse to mean. What does the verse mean? What does it say? And so he said, I take this verse to mean, without holiness, no one will see the Lord in you. So no one will know you're a Christian if you're not living a holy life. That's not what the verse is saying. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse says quite clearly, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Not the Lord in you. It's talking about the man who doesn't have holiness. It's not referring to other people outside of that man. It's saying that the man who does not have holiness will not see the Lord. That's what it's saying. Very clear. It's part of our salvation. Sanctification is part of our salvation. Because without it, we will not see the Lord. This is not imputed holiness, by the way. Say, so, well, maybe this is just the imputed holiness of God. So we, our position is we're holy, right, before God. How many of you guys have sinned in the last 24 hours, right? Me, I have. But you know what? I'm holy before the Lord, right? Because I've been declared holy, because Christ is holy. Maybe this is imputed holiness, but look at the text. We can see that clearly from the context. He says, follow peace. That's something you actively do, right? Follow peace and holiness. If this is imputed holiness, in the middle of this verse, he changed the conversation from something you actively do to something that was passively given to you. And that throws the whole interpretation into chaos now. Because any verse thing could just change subjects right in the middle of the verse. You wouldn't know what he's talking about. If we can follow peace with all men, then we can pursue holiness. This is talking about personal holiness, not imputed holiness. This is talking about sanctification or sanctified holiness is the word I'm looking for. We are declared holy before God, but that is not in view in this verse. In view here is the practical holiness that comes through sanctification of the Spirit. It's important because it demonstrates that our salvation is genuine by active work of the Spirit in our lives. 
We stress this a lot around here, and it's, it's important to stress because so much of the church in America today does not believe, does not believe that holiness is required to be saved. We're so on the easy believism, easy grace train that it's just, just come, pray, get baptized, and oh, they fell away, but at least they're born again. How many people do we, I know people, I, I know a lady at our old church that she passed away now, but her son is in, in, in gross sin and immorality. She'd always say, well, at least when he was four years old at vacation Bible school, he prayed and asked Jesus in his heart. And since he was four years old, has never followed that up with any kind of fruit. I once worked at the county hospital. And the county hospital, if you know, it's also a trauma unit. It's, a, it's where they bring everybody. All the crime victims, all the shooting victims. You see a lot of that. And... Uh, we in, in security were had to be around when like gang shootings came in and you know because of stuff going on. But I was there for almost every day of the week. I had a gang. I mean, Bakersfield is a very dangerous place. A lot of crime there. A lot of gang activity there. So four or five days a week, I'd be with a gang shooting, and I began to notice a pattern. Every person who was brought in. These, these gang members, he, he shot somebody and they came and shot him back, kind of thing. They all had a pastor in there. The family had a pastor. And we'd sit and listen to them talk to the family and he, almost every time, well, he passed away, but take comfort. When he was a boy in Sunday school, he asked Jesus in his heart, bless him. When he was a teenager, he sang in the choir and I believe he was truly saved. When he was a little boy in vacation Bible school, he prayed the sinner's prayer. I began to think to myself, you're telling me every gang member in Bakersfield is saved? No, of course not. Of course not. So much of professing Christianity today believes that you can be saved with no evidence in your life. None. Folks, the Bible just does not teach that. The Bible teaches we have a new nature. And by the way, the Holy Spirit's not weak. Let's stop pretending, right? Like, oh, they got saved, but just Satan is so strong and this world is so strong. And you want to stop them right there and go, they're so strong, they're stronger than God himself? Come on. How many, pro how many professing Christians are in America today compared to those who are actively involved in church? Just that. I think there's probably more people outside the church who call themselves Christians than inside the church. You want me to believe the Holy Spirit is so weak and impotent he lost that many people? No. The Holy Spirit is strong and powerful. And when he comes to take up residence in the life of a person, that produces a change in their life. That creates a new person. If it doesn't, he's not living there. Like right, yeah. the park kitchen, they're trying to sell me on nonsense. You can be demon-possessed and Holy Spirit-possessed at the same time. You cannot. That is false teaching. That is wrong. So he said, Pastor, why is sanctification termed as part of our salvation? Because it's the evidence of it. 
If we're not being sanctified, we're not saved. If there's no struggle with sin, we're not saved. If there's no outward holiness, we're not saved. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord because unholy people living unholy lives demonstrate their profession of faith is vain. That's why. The third way to view our salvation is in its final form. We see this in verses like Romans 8.30 where it says those he justified, he glorified. Right? How many of those he justified? All of them. All of them. By the way, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. I'm just going to throw that in there because it's not possible he predestined some who didn't get saved. And it's not possible he called some who didn't get justified. And it's not possible he justified some who didn't get glorified. There's, there, there's, a, whole, there's a whole connection there, isn't there? We see it in 1 Peter 1.9. Turn there. 1 Peter 1.9. So we have been saved, that is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are being saved, that's the effective sanctification of the Spirit in our life. And we shall be saved, meaning the end product, our glorification, is definite. Look at 1 Peter 1.9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. I I thought salvation happened back here. And so the Roman Catholic, who, who just conflates all of these aspects of salvation into one, they're going to say, see, the end of your faith, the end of your being faithful is salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's referring to final glorification, right? Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. A few verses earlier, Peter talked about the trial of their faith, didn't he? It was sanctifying them, and the end of that process is glorification. In other words, God is doing something in your trials, Christian, that will come out of the end to your glorification, to your final salvation. So this is a Christian work. I'm sorry, this is a Christian topic he's talking about here. Go ahead and go to Philippians chapter 2 again. He's talking to Christians about a work of salvation being done in them and their need for participation in the process. We do participate in the process of our salvation, not the imputation of righteousness, not the forgiveness of sins, but we do participate in the process in between, the sanctifying process. So let's start here and let's unpack this. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul is, uh, talks about his imprisonment and his possible execution. That's very important to this passage. Then here in chapter 2, he gives these believers under persecutions and commands. He tells them to minister comfort to one another as they've received comfort from God. He commanded them uh, not to do anything through strife or for vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. They can do this by looking not every man to his own things, but every man to the things of others. He reminds them to have the mind of Jesus, the mind of humility and obedience, even to the point of death, he assures them that those demanding they declare Caesar is Lord will one day bow the knee and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And our text begins with wherefore, which refers back. So in light of the fact that everyone will one day bow and declare Jesus is Lord, in light of that, 1 verse 12, as ye have always obeyed. Paul knows that they had been obedient to him in the past. This is why he rejoices in this particular church. They had a heart to serve Christ, and they were obedient to Christ's apostles. Paul didn't need to repeat himself like he did with churches like Corinth, did he? What a mess Corinth was. 
That wasn't Philippi. It was much different. These believers received the word of God and obeyed it. He goes on, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So he goes, in light of everyone bowing to Christ eventually, everyone declaring him Lord, I want you to obey what I'm about to tell you. And you have obeyed in my presence. They were faithful, obedient Christians in his presence. Paul, or with Paul to lean on for spiritual guidance, they were always faithful. But now they needed to learn to walk faithfully without him there. He says, not as in my presence only, not just like you were when I was with you, but now much more in my absence. See, Paul's in prison. He can't be there to support them anymore. He may be executed. The time is coming, Paul is saying, well, I'm not going to be here anymore to help you. I'm not going to be here to lean on for support. I need you to learn to obey Christ on your own in my absence. In fact, he said here, much more in his absence. Be more faithful now that I can't be there with you. I've been part of a church, and I, I have observed other churches, where there's a major falling away when a spiritual leader is gone. That's sad. I've seen pastors die and the church falls apart. People start competing for control and influence. Others stop coming and they go find another church. Or they just quit church altogether. The church we came from, their pastor passed away back in 2001. And within weeks, a church of almost 200 people was a church of about 30, 35 people. Well, he's gone now. We're going to go find a different church. Or we're just going to stop going to church. We loved him so much, we just can't have another pastor. Or they fought with other people in church. Wanted position, wanted control, wanted to become pastor, and tore the church apart. A lot of times you'll find that those who leave to go to the church, they end up leaving the, the spiritual moorings of that pastor and going to a church that's not even biblical. Once a spiritual leader is gone, the people sometimes can't walk on their own. They stumble, and many times they just fall altogether. It's a sign of spiritual weakness, by the way. Spiritual sickness when the Christians can't walk on their own. Spiritual mentors are good. But if we lean so heavily upon them that we can't stand on our own two feet, we're in trouble. Our spiritual walk is weak. Our last church, I went there when I was young. Went back there and 2010, and then left last year, and so we were there 12 years this last time. And uh, there was a pastor there when we came in in 2010, and then he left in 2017 to go take another church, and a new pastor came in. And our church of uh, 150 people quickly became a church of 30 people. Well, he's gone, so we're... Most of those people today don't attend church anywhere or live in any sense as a Christian. They were there for him. They had no spiritual strength within themselves. It was sad to watch. When the new pastor came in, I was part of the public committee that called him. People actually asked me, so are you guys going to stick around? 
Yes, why wouldn't you realize that God called us to a church, not to a person? We weren't here because of who was here. And we'll be here when he's gone because this is our church. Should it even be a question? And I was asked by more than one person. Are you guys going to stick around? Yes. Yes, we are. Of course we are. We serve Christ, not Pastor So-and-so. It's amazing, the, the level. I love going, going back to my old church up in the Bay Area. My family was first saved there back in 1979, I believe. Uh, we moved away in 1991, so I haven't been a member there since 1991. They were one of our supporting churches in our evangelism, and I preached there once a year. And today, if I, if I were to travel back there today, right now, there are people in that church who were there in 1991 when we left. There are people who were there. You realize that since we left, they've gone through, they're on their third pastor since 1991. And those people are still there. You know why? They don't serve the pastor. They serve the Lord. One of them has been there since 1974 when the church started. He's been through one, two, three, four, five pastors and two church splits. And he's there. He's an usher. He's the groundskeeper. He's, he's old. He's, he's getting old. I mean, he's, he was young. He was old when I was a kid, it seems like. Wow. What's amazing is he hasn't really changed. He looks the same. But he's got to be old. But he's been there for so long. Serving faithfully. It doesn't matter who got mad and left. It doesn't matter who the new pastor is or the old pastor. He's, he's serving the Lord day in, day out, faithfully. That is a spiritually strong person. Now, don't get in a conversation with him. Or he'll keep you for four or five hours. He can talk. But I'd say what? He is an example of spiritual stamina that all of us should look at and go, my goodness. And the same year my mom died, a lady in the church died there. Her husband still goes there. They were saved at the church. Uh, I want to say sometime around 1980, 81. I think just before I was born, the, the, the church ran buses and brought kids in, and, and their daughter was going on the bus, and one day they were like, you know what, we sent her with these strangers, we probably should go see where, where she's going, what they're doing. So they went there and got saved. He, he's there this morning. They have services going on, no, they, they just ended seven minutes ago. But you know what, seven minutes ago, he was there, in church. Five pastors, two church splits. He was there, I promise you. I'll go home. I'll look up their live stream. They'll shake hands. They keep the camera on. I'll, we'll see him walking around. You know why? Because he's spiritually strong enough to say, I serve the Lord. When his wife died in 2018, she had been there since 1980, 81. She was the church secretary. She was doing church work on the computer in her hospital bed the day that she died. You know why? Five pastors, two, two church splits, doing church work as she's dying because she serves the Lord, not the pastor. Faithfulness, church. That's what Paul is trying to instill in these people. Be faithful when I'm gone. 
Don't use my leaving as an example of why you, should, you have to stop following the Lord. Well, Paul's dead. I just can't go on. Paul says, no, no, when I'm dead or if I stay in prison for the rest of my life, even more in my absence, be more faithful than you have been in my presence. That's what he's saying. They need to obey even if he's not there. We had a family, our church, our last church. I don't, I don't run this all by my wife, but she knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about it. The wife died around 2011, 12, I think it was 11. And the family, they grew up in church. She, she's the daughter of the current pastor there. He wasn't pastor then. And uh, he grew up in church. He actually, his family was in the church in Fresno that we went to the short time we lived in Fresno before coming to Bakersfield when I was a kid. Both went to Bible college. Both served the Lord. He was the school principal and the song leader of the church. And she had a relapse of cancer and she passed away. Within months of her passing away, and she was obviously the spiritual strength of the family. Which, by the way, men, be spiritual leaders in the home. The wife should not be the spiritual glue holding families together. When she died within a few months, he was out of church. No longer serving. Since then, he's lived with several girls, never been married, as far as I know, to them. I think he's married now. I could be wrong. I, can, I glean information from Facebook, but he's had these relationships. He hasn't been in church since about 2011, faithfully. One daughter is a lesbian. One is lesbian affirming, the other one. The boys are... Obviously, from pictures I've seen and from things they post online, not living godly lives. That's what Paul, I don't want to pass off the scene and have you guys fall into chaos. I, don't, I want to make sure your faith is not in me, but in Christ. Obviously, that family, barring the lady, I believe was saved. Everybody else is probably lost and only playing the part. And when... When the person who was the glue fell, fell away or left, that was it. It fell apart. My wife dying shouldn't throw me into apostasy. What a shame if that happens. So spiritually weak. Look at the next phrase in the verse. Work out your own salvation. This is echoing... Several other passages. I'll read you a few of them because we're getting, I know, a little bit short on time. It's just too many to spend time on, but there are in your bulletin. Listen to Hebrews 6, 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. This speaks of the things that accompany salvation, namely, practical holiness and the fruit of the Spirit. There are things, church, that accompany salvation. Again, we don't believe in easy believism. Salvation must have fruit to it, to be genuine. Someone comes in and makes a profession of faith, we should rejoice in that profession. They don't follow through with it. We shouldn't sit there and go, well, at least they're saved. No, that, that might be a sign. What a blessing to see Joe Eskenazi, right? I had my thoughts when he first, I first met him. 
I thought, okay, well, maybe this young man just got his old grandpa to pray, said his prayer, and nothing's going to come of this. He has borne tremendous fruit of true salvation. He even came to church once, which was very difficult for a 105-year-old man to do. And today he'd like to be in church. And when we go and read him scripture or pray with him, he's excited about it. His grandson had texted me one time that they get on the phone and they read scripture and sing songs together. His heart is for the Lord. That's fruit of salvation. When he says work out your own salvation, he's not saying work to be saved. He's saying work out the fruit that comes with your salvation. That sanctification. Be part of that process. Show fruit of that. Listen to Colossians 3.12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. This makes it clear. There are things that we are to put on as Christians. There is responsibility for a Christian. We are to do certain things. Not to be saved, but because there's a new nature within us. We are to put on certain things and to put off certain things. So when Paul tells them to work out your own salvation, he's not saying try to stay saved. He's not saying work hard to get saved. He's saying put on and put off. In other words, take part in the process of sanctification. Let me give you one more. Go ahead and turn to this one. 1 Timothy 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. The Bible says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Is he telling him to save himself by his good works? Continue on. Continue on. I was reading from a a Catholic website who, I was reading Philippians 2, and then they brought up this passage and said, see, saying the same thing. Continue in the doctrine you receive, which they put in parentheses, the doctrine of the Catholic Church, and you'll save yourself and those who hear you. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not what Paul is saying. Continuing brings salvation because ongoing sanctification is a sign of true conversion. In other words, he's telling Timothy, take heed to yourself. Obey the doctrine of salvation that you've received. And in doing that, in continuing and being obedient, you'll save yourself in the sense of you will get through the process of sanctification to reach final glorification. God is working out that process in you. Continue. Be faithful in the process. Those who don't continue or stray from the true doctrine of salvation demonstrate they are not saved at all and will not be glorified on that day. Paul is telling these Christians that in his absence, they should be working out their own salvation, meaning not coming to him, but learning to stand on their own learning to be obedient in and of themselves, learning how to read the Bible and understand it themselves, 
learning how to get along with other Christians and love other Christians themselves, learning how to handle sin and temptation themselves. Go back to Philippians 2. Paul says, I'm going to be gone. And you've been obedient while I've been here. So continue now. Continue being sanctified. Continue in that obedience. He says, with fear and trembling. What does this mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to fear as in literally be afraid. Like something scary happened and we're afraid of it. That's not what he says. One commentator said this, have an eager, trembling anxiety to obey God in all things, considering the tremendous sacrifice of Christ and the unspeakable depth and tenderness of his love. Christ has sacrificed himself, shed his love abundantly, I think it was in Titus, abundantly upon us. We should have a reverential fear. We should have an anxiety. I've got to obey this great love. I've got to obey this God who gave himself for me. It's not really fear in that sense. The same word is used other places. Psalm 211 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Turn to Ephesians 6, verse 5. We'll see it again here. Ephesians 6, 5. Paul says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the singleness of your heart as unto Christ. This doesn't mean be physically afraid of your boss. Like, I got to serve my employer well, I gotta, or he's going to beat me up, and I'm going to be... It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, obey your boss because Christ is the one you're serving. And you should be anxious about that. You should have a fear saying, i got to respect my boss because in respecting my boss, I'm respecting Christ. I've got to obey my boss because in obeying my boss, I'm obeying Christ. I'm going to go above and beyond for my boss because in going above and beyond for my boss, I'm going above and beyond for Christ. That's what it's talking about. Taking care, being anxious in the sense of I'm serving Christ in this capacity. Go back one more time to our text. Verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, he says to the Christians there. Work it out. Be obedient. Continue sanctification. Put on what you're supposed to put on. Put off what you're supposed to put off. And do this with some trembling, some anxiety, some care. Why? Because it's not all you. God's working in you. God's working in you. That's what sanctification, by the way, is God's work in us that we have to cooperate with. We have to submit ourselves to God. We have to lay ourselves upon the altar. But He's doing the work. You say, I don't want to put myself on the altar. Then maybe He's not doing the work. Maybe there's no sanctification, maybe there's no Holy Spirit there. But when you come and you lay yourself down, you say, God, do a work, change me. God, make me more holy. Give me a hatred for sin. That's a necessary component of sanctification, our surrender to it. And that surrender comes from the working of Christ in our life, drawing us to do that. You understand what I'm saying there? 
Obey with reverence and awe because the work that's happening in you is from God. The will to obey and the actual doing of it come from God. Our responsibility is to willingly submit to the work he's doing in our heart. Realizing it's the work of God that's doing it. This is where the doctrines of grace and free will meet in perfect harmony, by the way. Election and free will are not at odds. They're not. We need to understand that. They're in perfect harmony. When we see them as contradictory, I should say we see them as contradictory because our minds are finite. It's hard for us to understand how they're in perfect harmony, but they are. G.I. Packer once said this, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. God works in us to will, not against our will. Not forcing anything upon us. I'm not saved because Christ forced me to be saved. I'm saved because Christ worked in me to want to be saved. I freely came of my own free will in answer to the wooing and drawing upon my heart of the Holy Spirit. And I don't serve the Lord today because Christ forces me to. I willingly do it because there's a work in me that Christ is doing that I submit myself to. And even the act of submitting myself is the work of God. And I say, how does that, how does that work? But I don't know. I don't know. Our God is so amazing that sometimes you have to say, I don't know how it works. I just fall down and worship him. Because I, I don't know. We obey because God, we obey God because we want to obey God. And God is in the wanting and the doing. We do because we choose to do. We choose to do because he wants us to choose to do. So Christian, this morning, willingly submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Seek holiness and all that comes with it. God is working in you now. Cooperate with him. Cooperate. Be obedient. Listen, have spiritual stamina. Don't base your faithfulness on somebody else or some spiritual leader or mentor. Stand on your own. Be faithful. Be that person that someone could say, you know what? They've been in this church for 40 years through so many pastors and so many church splits, and they're still there faithfully serving every week. I know where they are. I know where they are because they're faithful. They're faithful. Be in awe of the work that God is doing in your life. We work and God works. These, are two, these two truths are friends, not enemies. Let me challenge you this morning, church. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this time in the Word. What a misunderstood, misapplied, abused chapter or verses of the Bible, Lord. But my heart is so gripped and stirred that this passage is urging us on to obedience and faithfulness. Not because we have to earn something or keep something, because you're working in us. Where does sovereignty end and free will begin? Where do they overlap? I don't know. I just worship the God that says both are true. 
And all I can do is submit myself, that knowing that it's you that's working in me to will and to do. Oh, God, make our church faithful. Make our church faithful. I don't want their faithfulness to depend on me or some other leader or, or member or pastor. I don't want my faithfulness to depend on any one person. May not be vested in my wife, may not be vested in my, in my friends, may not be vested in my spiritual mentors, but in Christ alone. That when someone looks and says, all that they've gone through, all the trial, all the hardship, they're still there serving faithfully. In a world marked by change, may our lives be marked by faithfulness. We thank you for the work you're doing in us, Lord. Help us to continue to work out our own salvation, knowing that it's you that works in us for the willing and the doing. Bless us now. Bless this offering. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.